The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now, I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, and open them to Ephesians chapter 3. And I want you to find this rather quickly because we're going to read this scripture before I get into the comments tonight. Ephesians chapter 3, and I'd like to look at what the Apostle Paul has to say here in verses 14 through 21, where he gives us some very valuable information about uh, the Lord's church and the subject especially that we want to talk about tonight. So if you look in Ephesians 3, beginning in verse number 14, the apostle says, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God." Now, let me stop there and just remind you, Paul is writing to the church. This is the Ephesian church that he's writing to, and he's just praying for the strength of this church, the understanding they would have of the Lord. And he says in verse 20, Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, in our text verse, verse 21, unto him... Be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Now this evening we begin the last part of our study on the doctrine of the church. Uh, we've been at this for many, many months now and we've looked at many different aspects of, of the doctrine of the church that's given to us in Scripture. But this evening we want to uh, concentrate on the topic of church history. And specifically, the main topic that I want to speak to you about is the history of the Baptist church, which we maintain is the history of the true church that began with Jesus Christ. Now, I have been asked many times over the years to teach on this, on this subject, on the history of Baptist. Uh, I can remember when I first became the pastor of the church that I did a series on the church statement of faith. Uh, that was about 10 years ago. And it was during that time that there was a, an appetite that was developed uh, for learning more about how the church began and what's happened to the church through these past 2,000 years of history. And I'm glad to be able to, to tackle this and to take the challenge after all these many years. Uh, it's a subject that's near and dear to my heart and one which in the past I have taught on before but not here. But when we look back at that time when I, I was teaching on the statement of faith, that was really a, a defining moment for our church. And if you were here, uh, you know what I'm talking about. That we pretty much had two options at that time when I began to teach the statement of faith. Either I could teach it as it was, or the church could abandon much of what that statement of faith had to say. And I thought that there was only one thing that we could do 
since the statement of faith does reflect the historical beliefs of Baptists back to the time of Christ, and we do believe that it's eminently biblical, I thought that the only thing that I could do was to teach it just as it stands. I really couldn't do anything else. Now, uh, it's not my purpose tonight to open up 10-year-old wounds, but there were some who were in very strong disagreement with what uh, I taught on the statement of faith. But I do know this, that the statement of faith is supported by Scripture. There's plenty of Scripture that, uh, that substantiates it. It's given in the document. Um, and so I believe it's true to the Bible, and I thought that the thing for us to do was to teach that just, just as it was. But there were some who disagreed, and so they decided to leave the, ch- leave the church. But I have confidence in the statement of faith. Well, you may not be aware, <clears throat> but going back to that time, there was more than one issue that divided the church. Now, one of the things that the church uh, was, was we, we discussed and became something that um, uh, we really had to spend a great deal of time on to get these doctrines straight was on the doctrines of grace. That was a very divisive issue. But you may not know this. Uh, there was another doctrine that caused quite a bit of consternation among some of the membership of the church, and that was what is the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there were some who, who didn't believe what we taught on this, and they wouldn't agree that Baptists can trace their history all the way back to the time of Christ, and rather they accepted that there are other groups that differ from Baptist beliefs, and yet they have a valid claim to be true churches. Now, as it turns out, that's not only a 10-year-old controversy, but it happens to be one that we've also faced here in the, in the uh, recent, recent past. Um, I began teaching on this back in the, in the summer on the, on the doctrine of the church, and we had some folks in the church that didn't agree with what we teach about the church. And so um, when I began this series, I was just laying the groundwork for their departure. And so they did leave. Uh, but this is a, an, an incredibly, I think, important issue. Um, we, we don't have any doctrines in this church that we're afraid to preach. We, we don't have anything that we stand on that we're not afraid to stand right here in the pulpit and say exactly what we believe about them. And it really doesn't matter a whole lot to me whether people uh, agree with them or not. I want people to agree. But I want to agree with the Lord and with the Bible before I worry about what people have to say about it. And so we're going to teach what we think is, uh, is the doctrine of God's Word. And uh, I, I just wonder how much conviction does a person really have if they claim that they believe something or have it in their statement of faith, and yet they're not willing to talk about it or stand upon it. That's not really much conviction, and I don't want to be a pastor like that. Now, just the other day, I I did speak to someone who paid us a compliment. Uh, I don't don't think it was a compliment that was intended strictly for me, and I didn't take it that way. I really do think it's one for the entire church. This person told me, he said, when I came here, uh, I had confidence in you because... I believe that what you would do is strip away everything else and preach strictly from the Word of God. Now, I think that complements the entire Berean Baptist Church, and that's because all of you are good students of God's Word. You are truly Bereans. You check out Scripture before you believe them. I mean, you want to know what the Bible says. And I would not be able to preach from the Bible and tell you what it says if you weren't willing to listen to it. And I'm afraid that's the way that many churches have gone. They have just abandoned the Bible. They don't want to hear what it has to say any longer. 
But here in our church, I think we have people that love Scripture, you respect it, and you do support biblical teaching. I can't help but think back a few years ago when um, we had a visiting missionary, and uh, I'm not not quite sure, I don't remember for sure who the missionary was. I think it might have been Brother Ekno. But Brother Randy uh, Randy, uh, Christensen asked him a question that I'd never heard anybody ask in a missionary question and answer period before. And he asked him, how do you preach the Bible? Do you do expository preaching? And I just had to smile when I heard that question. Uh, Do you do expository preaching? And since a missionary is one who has been given a responsibility to start churches, which, by the way, I'll say he should start Baptist churches. If he comes out of our church, he'll start a Baptist church. And so if he starts Baptist churches and he's charged with the responsibility of discipling people, then we need to know what method does he use to do that. And that's an honest and a fair question to ask. I mean, certainly we want them to use the right, uh, the right method. So what we choose to do and what we want missionaries to do is to teach the whole counsel of the Word of God. And when you do that, you're going to come across doctrines that are controversial. And this subject that we have tonight is one that is quite controversial. M.L. Mosier Sr., in his book on Baptist doctrine, had a chapter that's entitled The Baptist Name. And I don't agree with everything that he says in his book, but I did agree with this. He said that the Baptist name is a divisive name. And he said that Baptist churches are never united to one another until they are separate from everybody else. Now, do you get that? I'll say it again. Baptist churches are never united until they are separate from everybody else. And that's why the subject of our history is a quite controversial one. Now, I've told you before... When you see Baptist on our sign out there, it means something. It differentiates us from other people. We are separated from everybody else on the doctrines of God's Word. Now, as Baptists, we have maintained distinct doctrine in all of our groups going back to the time of Christ. And that is a fact that has been attested by both Roman Catholics and Protestant historians In a lesson a little bit later on, I think it's the fourth in the series, we're going to deal with that, what historians of the Roman Catholics and the Protestants and others have said about the history of Baptist. Well, our subject tonight, though, we're going to get to those things a little bit later. Our our subject tonight is perpetuity. And that's going to be the overarching theme as we go through the history of the church. It's, It's perpetuity. And you may not really understand that word. I mean, you know it uh, from a secular sense, I suppose. But maybe you don't understand it as it relates to the church. So we're going to start with this tonight. The definition of perpetuity. What is that? Well, the basic definition, uh, the secular definition, is the quality or state of being perpetual. In other words, it just means continuing on without interruption. Now, that's the basic secular definition. But as it applies to the church, we can give it this definition, that from the time Jesus established the church until the present time, there have always been believers and churches that held to essential New Testament truth. Now, that's a rather long definition, so I'm going to give it to you again, and you can fill in the blanks. From the time that Jesus established the church until the present time, there have always been believers and churches that held to essential New Testament truth. Now, while you're getting all of that down, 
these churches that go all the way back to the time of Christ were never a part of Roman Catholicism. Now, that is where the first controversy arises, that we were never a part of Roman Catholicism. And the reason there is so much controversy over this is because there are so many people that accept the propaganda of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, the Roman Catholic Church would have you believe that they were the first and they were the only church, and Protestants don't help that situation because they also believe that the Roman Catholic Church was the first church. It slowly went off track, and it needed to be reformed, which is what happened in the 16th century. Now, Roman Catholics will look at that, and they, they will admit that they had some wrong practices. There were a few things that went askew, but these are mostly internal matters, and certainly they didn't warrant the schism, the, the separation of Protestant churches from the Roman Catholic Church. That, well, that wasn't a necessary thing. So you see that whether you're talking about Roman Catholics or this other huge group of people that are known as Protestants, almost everybody accepts this, that the true church came through Roman Catholicism. But actually, when you look at the history of the church in that vein, you're not speaking about the history of the true church, but rather you're speaking of the history of apostasy, the history of the apostasy of the church, apostasy from the faith rather than the maintenance of the doctrines that were given to us by Jesus Christ. Romanism is not the history of the church. The history of, of Romanism is apostate Christianity which, by the way, only gets worse and worse as the years go by. And finally, it will culminate in the great whore, mystery Babylon that you read in Revelation chapter 17. Now, since we are in such controversial territory, uh, when we claim that there are true churches that have existed apart from Roman Catholicism, um, you're not, you're not going to have any, to find a whole lot of people that are going to defend what I'm telling you tonight. But these are churches that maintain the truth because the apostles and Jesus Christ were the founders of it and those churches still exist today. These are churches that never apostatize from the faith and they have been in perpetual existence since the time of Christ. Now, you understand, being students of the Bible, you know that I'm not talking about any individual church because there is no church that started in the New Testament. I mean an individual church, like this one here that we're reading uh, in the book of Ephesians, or the Corinthian church, or the Galatian churches, and all of those. None of those churches have existed since the Bible times. All of those have gone out of existence. But the doctrine of the church that we have received from Christ and from the apostles that, are that is written in the New Testament... Uh, there are churches who have believed those doctrines going back to the time of Christ, and it's the doctrine that links us today to those churches in the past. Now, let me qualify these statements somewhat. There are some Baptists who do believe the Roman Catholic lie that Baptists are Protestants. Now, as much as I like John MacArthur... And I think that uh, he, 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 I have great respect for his teachings. He is dead wrong on this subject. He said not to let anybody tell you that Baptists are not Protestants. And so I guess he means me, because I'm telling you Baptists are not Protestants. There are people who have believed like the Berean Baptist Church all the way back to the time of Christ. Our bloodline, our stock is not in Catholicism. We've always remained separate from, from them 
whereas the Reformation churches, of course, have not. So we trace our history doctrinally to churches that have never apostatized. And we admit that we weren't always called Baptist. Christ didn't name the church, so we weren't always called Baptist, just as there are true churches today that might not carry the name of Baptist on their door, but they're true churches because their doctrine lines up and is the same as what we find in the New Testament. So true churches have always been in existence because Christ promised they would be. William R. Downing states it this way. He said, from the time the Lord Jesus Christ established the New Testament church during his earthly ministry until the present time, there have always existed believers and churches apart from Romanism and Protestantism that have the essential of New Testament truth. Now, that's a big statement, but it's one that I think that can be proven. Uh, those of you that remember Richard Bennett, uh, Richard Bennett is a, was a former uh, Roman Catholic priest who came and spoke to us a few years ago, and I like what he had to say about the Roman Catholic Church. Rather than saying it was the first church, he says that it was the first schismatic, that if you want to go and find error, if you want to find apostasy and the worst departures of the faith, then the where, place that you go is to the Roman Catholic Church. Now, as a further note about the definition, the church has had a perpetual existence since the time of Christ, but that doesn't mean that through the centuries the church has evolved. The church has not evolved. The church starts with the New Testament and it ends in the New Testament. I mean, as far as its doctrine is concerned. Its doctrines are established in the New Testament and those doctrines do not change. And that's very important. Because if you find a change of practice in doctrine, then to that degree, the church is not a New Testament church. If you find something there that hasn't been sanctioned by Scripture, then that church, if it believes those doctrines, to that extent is not a New Testament church. So the church that came out of the New Testament period was not an evolving organism. That when it came out, it didn't just suddenly sprout wings and grow feathers and fly away somewhere into something else. And there are many people who do believe that, that they believe the church developed out of the New Testament and then it gradually grew into a different organism. It has all these evolving doctrines to become what it is today. And so to find a New Testament church, according to them, you don't necessarily have to use the New Testament as the standard for it. And they say that's because New Testament doctrines were not completely settled at the time that God gave us the church in the New Testament period. Well, we dispute that. Um, when Moses built the tabernacle, he patterned it after blueprints that were given to him on Mount Sinai. Here's what Hebrews says. Who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. Now, the first part of that verse, who serve unto the example and the shadow of heavenly things, that's speaking about the priesthood. The first part of the verse applies to the priesthood. And the priesthood and everything that was in the tabernacle was patterned after a blueprint that was in heaven. Well, the church is patterned after a blueprint that we find in the New Testament, which is God's word that is settled in heaven. It's settled there is the blueprint for the church was in heaven, and it doesn't change. 
And, and that really strikes a serious blow to both Romanism and Protestantism, Protestantism and, and we'll see that a little bit later in the study. Now, let's go a little bit further. We have the, we have the definition of perpetuity, and, and we're saying that there has always been a true church since the time of Christ. So this means that the church is in the world today, and you can find it. If you do the investigation, honest investigation, you can find the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how do we know that? I mean, how can we make a statement like that? How can we, how, how can we be sure that there is a church that is like the church that Christ started, and we don't have to settle for, for something that has morphed into a, a different thing than what Christ organized back in the first century? Well, secondly, we're going to look at the proofs of perpetuity. What, what, how do we know that this statement is true, that there is a church that goes back that time? Well, first of all, since you're good Bereans, uh, I'll tell you this. Don't trust the statements that I make just because I make the statements. That's not why you believe these things. I don't have any authority for anything that I say if these are just my words. Now, fortunately for us, or I should say providentially or by God's predestination, he has provided ample proof for us about the existence of his church and how we can know that the same church that Christ started is the one that we can worship in today. And the first proof that we have are the words of the divine Son of God, what he said himself. First, we have the proof of Christ's promise. Well, this takes us to some very familiar words of Christ. Uh, these are words that can only have one meaning as it pertains to this subject, and it's what Jesus said in Matthew sixteen eighteen. He was speaking to the disciples and to Peter particularly. And there he says, And I say unto thee, Thou art Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, as you well know, there is a lot of controversy over the meaning of the first part of this verse. What did Jesus mean when he said, Upon this rock I will build my church? Is he speaking of Peter? Is he the rock? Or is he talking about Peter's confession? Is Christ himself the rock? And that is a quite controversial subject, and we looked at all those possibilities when we studied that passage in the Matthew series. And let me tell you this also, that you can still be orthodox and believe that the rock there is speaking of Peter. Now, you can't believe the lie that the Roman Catholic Church tells you that that Peter was the first pope, but there is actually a good argument that Jesus meant that Peter was the rock upon which the church would build. And you can believe that and be orthodox. I don't happen to believe that myself, but you're not going to be way off in left field somewhere if you take that, as long as you don't believe what Roman Catholicism says about it. But that's not the part of the, of the verse that really we need to look at right now. We can talk about that controversy at another time. The important part as it comes to our subject is the last part of the verse where Christ said that he would build the church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Now what the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestants like to do is to toy with that statement in order to make it ineffective. But what did Jesus mean by this if he didn't mean that his church would continue until he comes again? Is there any support that that's what he meant? Well, we can look at another place. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, there he said, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. 
Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And here is the promise. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So you look at that last part of verse 20. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. And I don't know how you could interpret that any differently than a promise that Christ would keep his church alive throughout the ages. So we have the promise of Christ, and if he's not right about that, and he's not trustworthy in this, then why would we trust him for anything else? Jesus said that we can find his church in the world today. So do you understand the implications of that? There are many different churches with many different doctrines And all of them can't be right. That's a simple deduction. All of them cannot be right. Well, they couldn't be right unless Christ is divided. Do we have any indication that Paul would say this or anyone else, that Christ is divided? That's the only way that all denominations could be right. This is what Buell Kazee said. He said, The New Testament was not written for ecclesiastical denominations. It envisages... Only one kind of church, and all its instruction is for that kind of church alone. It makes no allowance for the variety of interpretations which have crystallized into the many denominational bodies of this day. It was in the 16th century that modern denominations began to take form. History is definite about these. Lutherans, Episcopalians, Reformed, Presbyterians, and so on, with the ever-increasing list to this present day. So how could we make a statement less than that? If Christ is not divided, as Paul certainly indicates, then why are there denominations? And how could all of them be true churches? Now, I made a reference to this uh, maybe a couple of weeks ago, that um, Baptists, that is our kind of Baptists, do not believe that we are a denomination. Now, denominationalism says that that all churches, that there are all of these different churches, are branches of one big church, no matter what their differences of doctrine may be. But I'm going to tell you that the Christian church is a tree with a straight trunk. It doesn't have any branches. There's only one true church. There is one doctrine of Christ, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. And you can find a church who teaches it because Christ promised it. So for those members who decided to leave our church over this issue, they're in a real conundrum with this, trying to explain how there can be more than one true church with many different doctrines. Now, secondly, as proof of perpetuity, there is the proof of the Scripture's teachings. So we have the first proof, that's God the Son's promise, and this proof is the proof of God the Holy Spirit's inspiration. The Holy Spirit inspired the Scriptures, and he says that we have a perpetual church. So inspired Scripture says it. Well, let's let's take a note of some of those Scriptures. First one would be in our text that we read tonight, Ephesians 3.21, where Paul says, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Now, if you have your Bible open there, you just look up the page uh, to verses 10 and 11, 
where he says to the intent that now under the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. And what Paul is about to tell us here is that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is in the eternal purpose of God. And those things that are in God's eternal purpose do not change. So it's God's eternal purpose that the church would always give glory to Christ in all generations. And that would be a very difficult thing to do if there wasn't a church. And it would be a very difficult thing to do if the church has gone into apostasy and is teaching a lie. So how is that kind of a church going to give glory to the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, according according to these scriptures, there is no generation that doesn't have a true church. Well, this causes some problems for people. It causes problems for those like Churches of Christ and Mormons because they believe that they are the church restored that the church uh, disappeared for 1,800 years until they came along and they restored it. Well, that can't be according to the Scripture. Somebody, somebody's not telling the truth here, and I don't think that God's telling the lie. Ephesians 3.21 says, Glory goes to Christ in all ages through the church, and that means all generations in the time of history. So, so real church history has the same church in it in every generation since Christ began it. Well, that's a huge problem for Protestantism, as you can see. I don't know how many of you listen to R.C. Sproul and read Table Talk. I read Table Talk every day, but I do it with a very discerning eye. And that's because R.C. Sproul is what I would call the consummate Protestant. He doesn't have any trouble believing that the Roman Catholic Church was once the true church and then it became corrupt. And so, therefore, the, the Protestant Reformation was necessary to root out the corruption and to restore the gospel, especially these two key areas, which would be justification by faith alone and Scripture alone is the only rule of faith and practice. Now, the, the Reformers were great on those things, and, and we commend them, and we realize what a tremendous uh, thing that they did in bringing out those doctrines again, and, and that was good for them, and it was good for millions of people who have come after them, but the truth of the matter is the Reformers discovered nothing that the Baptists didn't already know long before that time. We were still teaching those very same doctrines. Now, I'm glad that R.C. Sproul affirms the solos of the Reformation, faith alone, grace alone, scripture alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. It's a wonderful thing that he affirms the solas, but he is wrong about the church, dead wrong about it. You know why? Because if he is right, Ephesians 3.21 is wrong. So who do we believe? Well, let's look at this in another way. When did... If you're a Protestant, how are you going to answer the question, when did the Roman Catholic Church lose the doctrine of justification by faith alone? That is, if they ever had it. When did they lose it? Well, I can tell you, you can go back a long, long way because in the very earliest days, they were teaching baptismal regeneration, just works for salvation. So they never actually believed in justification by faith alone. That's an essential for a church. We'll also talk about that a little bit later. But in the beginning of the Dark Ages especially, there was no light at all in that church. And do you know why we call them the Dark Ages? 
Well, it was mostly because the Western world was gripped in the darkness of Catholicism. There was no, there was no uh, religious advance, and there was no political advance. There was no social advance. Darkness reigned chiefly because of the corruption of Roman Catholicism. So when did that start? When when the Dark Ages began? Well, if you, if you want to give the Roman Catholic Church a, a few hundred years of goodness, as Sproul does, and claim that they were a, a good church for a while, when did the Roman Catholic Church become so corrupt that you could no longer defend it in any way as being a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, you look at the Dark Ages. Now, some people say the Dark Ages began with television. That's when we all became stupid. But when we talk about the Dark Ages religiously, the Dark Ages were in full swing about 1100 to 1200 A.D. Now, it started much earlier than that. In fact, it almost nearly coincided with the beginning of the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church started in the 4th century, and by the 6th century, the world was almost completely dark with it. But without question, by the time that you get to the 11th and the 12th centuries, there you have the Roman Catholic Church in its greatest power and its widest influence over people and holding people in its grip. The Dark Ages were there. There was no true gospel of Jesus Christ in the Roman Catholic Church. There's no way that you can defend what came out of that period. So we know that if there ever was a doctrine, a true doctrine, if Roman Catholicism ever was a true church, that by the 11th or 12th century, there was no true church. Well, we're students of history. When did the Protestant Reformation begin? 15th, 16th century. And so that means that, that for 400 years, there was no church. And R.C. Sproul, the consummate Protestant, would have to admit that there was no glory that was given to Christ through the church for at least 400 years. Now, do you see a problem with that? Well, I beg to differ with it because the Bible differs with that. Paul said that Christ would receive glory in the church throughout all generations. So there, that means that there had to be a church that was existing alongside of Roman Catholicism, a church besides Roman Catholicism that was here long before the Protestants were. So who were they? Well, take a look on the sign out front if you want to know. That's their identity. Now, let's go to another scripture, Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Paul says here, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Now here, we're looking at the church in the beginning. It begins with Christ. It's here. He gave his life for it. And this scripture says that he will present it to himself without spot or wrinkle. So what does that mean? Well, it means a body that will not see corruption. And so the church has to be here. It didn't need to be reformed. And then we have Matthew 16, 18 that we read a minute ago. And there's the promise that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. So we see no corruption, we see no need for restoration, and there is no need for reformation. The true church has always been here, and it can be found outside of Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. And then finally, that scripture we read in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, what, what does the Great Commission say? 
Now, some would argue that Jesus was speaking to the apostles alone as individuals. He was giving a commission to individuals. But we know that can't be true because the apostles would soon be dead. They weren't going to make it out of the first century. And so he couldn't be with a church perpetually like that. So he had to be talking about the church as an organism. That he he said this church will be kept alive until he comes again. So it's always going to have the right gospel. It will always have the right baptism. It will always have right doctrines and right ordinances. And those will be kept until he returns. Now you well remember the promise or the command, I should say, that, that Christ gave Paul that he related to us in 1 Corinthians in the 11th chapter when he was talking about the Lord's Supper, where he told Paul, he said, you observe this until I come again. You keep doing this until I come again. Well, we know that there is no true supper in Catholicism. The mess of the mass has so perverted it that it couldn't be Christ's church. Christ is actually blasphemed in the mass. And you know what the Protestants also protested? They protested transubstantiation, that the Mass was corrupt, and what the Protestants tried to do was fix it. And so what you always find Protestants doing is trying to fix something in a place where Christ never was. The Protestants would have been much better to abandon the whole mess of it, forget it, and go find some Baptist churches to become members of. But as I said, they're always trying to fix that. But the thing is, you you can't be a true church without being true to the Great Commission. That's an impossibility. You have to have that baptism. You have to have the gospel of Christ. You have to be teaching people these ordinances and the commands that Christ says to obey. How do you have a church without that? And so when you lose that, then most certainly you've lost the church. So we have this. We have the proof from Christ's promise. We have the proof of the Scripture's teachings. And then what else do we have? Well, we have the proofs of history's witness. And that's right where we're headed, isn't it? What does history have to say about it? Were there churches that were moving throughout history before Roman Catholicism, during Roman Catholicism, still here when Protestants came on the scene? Were there churches aside from the Reformation and the Catholic Church? Where is there a group that had the truths of Jesus Christ and the apostles' teachings and kept faithful to New Testament practices and doctrines? Well, if you wonder or if you say, well, no, there, there wasn't a church like that. There wasn't anybody existing along beside Roman Catholicism. Then I just have to ask you, who were they persecuting? Who were they after all of that time? Who, who are the people that are taken in the Inquisition and pronounced as heretics and tortured and killed? Well, I can tell you they weren't Muslims, although the Roman Catholic Church killed plenty of Muslims, but the Inquisition was not designed for Muslims. It was designed for people like you and me. Designed for us, people were cruelly tortured and killed who believed in salvation by grace through faith alone. They tortured people who did not baptize babies, who would not accept the authority of the Pope, who would not come to confession, who would not pay Roman priests for for forgiveness, and who would not come to the Mass. They tortured people who had nothing to do with their torturous ideas of Christ's doctrines. So they're torturing and killing somebody. Uh, the, the Protestants, when they came along, they, 
They suffered the wrath of Catholicism as well, but there were plenty of people before them. So who are they? Well, they are the true churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were persecuted. Now, later on, the Roman Catholic Church started abusing Protestants as well. And then the Protestants after that joined in to persecute Baptists. But history proves that there were people with Baptist beliefs, Bible beliefs that go all the way back to the time of Christ. And as I said earlier, there are Roman Catholic historians and Protestant historians who agree on that. They admit it. There has always been a true church because Jesus promised it, because the scriptures tell us about it, and because history affirms it. So that's what we're going to look at. In the next message, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about perpetuity again. And that message is about a month away from us right now with everything that's going on. So we're going to come back to that in about a month. And we'll look at perpetuity again. Uh, perpetuity again, And then uh, later after that, we're going to get into the history of Baptists through, through the centuries. Now, there was one thing that, that my dad used to say all, all of the time. I mean, it was a, one, of, one of his last lines before he got finished preaching a lot of sermons. He would say, thank God that I'm a Baptist. And I would say, thank God for that because God has preserved his church and his church is still here glorifying Jesus Christ. We thank him for that. Let's pray. Father, we uh, do thank you that we have a church that we can come to where we are confident that the doctrines of Jesus Christ are taught, that we're holding on to things that Jesus taught in the New Testament, that the apostles taught there. Uh, We still believe these same truths that have been carried down through the centuries. The essentials of the faith that make up a New Testament church have been here all of this time. And we're thankful, Lord, that you brought it down to us so that we can hear it and believe it and to follow you as your church. And never do we claim these things smugly. Never do we think that that this makes us better than anybody else. It just means that you've shown us the truth of this matter. And we just pray, Lord, you'd open up the eyes of other people that they would would just really uh, read Scripture and live by it and keep to those New Testament essential truths that make us a church. Thank you for these things, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org